Welcome to What The If News. All the news that gives you the blues. Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> Someday we'll, we'll advance. Someday we'll be able to move up to give you some reds and greens as well. But for now, we are in monochromatic news times. Sometimes you got to do that. And with us, as always, Gabby Panicia, virologist from Rockefeller University. How are you? I am good. And Matthew Stanley, professor of NYU at NYU. Uh, yes, although these days not all professors at NYU are actually at NYU. We're sort of distributed around the, the world since we're just teaching remotely, at least for a little longer. Right. For a little longer. Actually, unknown. Still open-ended. Yep. Um, New York City today, as we record this, uh, June 8th at 9.17 a.m., uh, we are opening the city in phase one, reopening in phase one. Yep, that's right. It'll be an exciting day to be on the subway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, apparently that means um, construction goes back to work, even though some has already been back to work. They're going back to work. Wholesale is back to work. Fishing, back to work. Congratulations. Hunting, also. <laughs> I don't know how much hunting goes on in New York City. Hopefully not a lot. Yeah. <laughs> but you're free to go. <laughs> Keep your mask on. <laughs> I don't know if the prey also, your prey has to be wearing a mask as well. I, I would think so. Um, otherwise, game over. Yeah. Um, and um, retail is able to reopen in the way kind of rest, re restaurants and retail are able to open, but only for takeout, basically. So mm -hmm. if you bought something, you can get up at the place. Um, and that's where we are. If this goes for two weeks, I read, if, we're, if there's no relapse, uh, in uh, the uh, no no massive spike in the numbers, oh, yeah, in the novid in numbers of uh, infections, um, we would go to phase two, which is pretty broad actually. Retail opens, uh, things like that. Offices will open. That's only in two weeks. Open broadly, but you have to be um, tested. Every office building has to test people as they come in for uh, test your temperature. Anyway, so that'll be fun. So Gabby, you were mentioning you you uh, you got a test. Yeah, I did. Uh, so I've been out protesting the last couple of days and uh, Rockefeller, fortunately, um, has decided that in addition to providing tests uh, for people coming back to work, if they're worried about being exposed, they're also providing tests for people who have been protesting on campus. Um, so it is still for the that's Rockefeller awesome. community, um, but it is very helpful. Oh, that's um, great. So I don't have to worry about spreading a virus to my virology lab uh, as I right. go back to work as well. Because um, protest means you are pro-test. Yes. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> How about that? And there's nothing worse than a virologist infected with a virus. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I always feel so betrayed. Yeah. Like every time I get sick, <laughs> it's personal. The layers of meta just get too much there. Yeah. Fortunately, though, I, uh, I wasn't taking the, the test where they have to shove that swab so far down your nose that you taste God. I just, I did a spit test. Um, which is very neat. So the spit test was developed at Rockefeller, or at least one of the versions of people have been trying to make spit tests for a while. Oh, wow. um, and you administer it yourself. Um, so it doesn't need a medical professional to swab you. What you essentially do is you spit into a cup and they give you like an eyedropper and a, like a, 
screw cap tube. It's a small Mm -hmm. little one milliliter uh, tube uh, that's full of basically all of the components for the reaction that they're going to need to purify any viral RNA out of your saliva. Um, And so you take the little eyedropper, suck your spit up, put it in the tube, um, and then, you know, wipe everything down, put it back in the bag, and then you can put that in a drop box, and then the people who are running the test will essentially collect that and then um, store it and process it. That's pretty cool. I mean, that's an amazing um, step forward. Oh, yeah. It's it's very helpful for the healthcare workers because they don't have to be right up in your face um, if you are sick. So up until now, that didn't exist. Is that right? This is a brand new thing for the world? I, I don't know if there are some developed in other countries. I feel like it's one of these things where people have been developing a lot of different variants of them. Right. Right. Um, but this was the first one that I've interacted with as far as I know. Um, and I don't know whether or not what their plans are for spreading it in New York. Like right now, I know it's on campus and that might be their sort of beta test um, with a lot more samples. But I know they have been uh, working closely with uh, Wild Cornell and not New York Presbyterian, which houses Wild Cornell. Mm-hmm. Um, and our hospital, they've been collaborating a lot and like use and, and testing out how well these tests actually work. Um, so I'm not the guinea pig for whether or not the test works at this point, but it is their sort of ramp up and figuring out how many of these can we process. Fascinating. Fascinating. We'll look forward to hearing more about that. And the turnaround is quick. Oh yeah. They're, they're running my samples, uh, today and I should hear back by the night. Wow. Like sometime later on this evening. It's like Amazon prime speed. (laughs) Fantastic. Fantastic. So our, uh, the news headline we were going to look at today was kind of interesting. I actually found, uh, I read this on uh, Apple News, but, uh, via Apple News. It, it's an article from uh, Smithsonian Magazine. And by the way, I used to work at the Smithsonian. Working at the Smithsonian was the beginning of my science uh, communication career, hobby career, such as it is down in D.C. I love the Smithsonian. So it's a great magazine. I highly recommend it. Um, And they had an article here, and the headline is, Compare the Flu Epidemic of 1918 and COVID-19 of 2020 uh, with caution. So compare the the flu pandemics of 1918 and 2020, basically, with caution. The past is not prediction. Now, this kind of goes in the face of one of those things we hear a lot about. Especially in politics these days, which is people who don't know history are are doomed to repeat it. Um, but here's a caution to say, well, you know, not so fast, always, not not always the case. So let me just read some sort of highlighted excerpts here. Um, influenza and coronavirus. Oh, sorry, this is by uh, Mari Weibel and Megan Culler Freeman of the University of Pittsburgh, since Smithsonian. Uh, the article is from June 5th, 2020. People have turned to historical experience with influenza pandemics to try to make sense of COVID-19. And for good reason. Influenza and coronavirus share basic similarities in the way they're transmitted via respiratory droplets and the surfaces they land on. Descriptions of H1N1 patients in 1918 to 1919 echo the respiratory failure of COVID-19 sufferers a century later. Lessons from efforts to mitigate the spread of the flu in 1918 and 1919 have justifiably guided this pandemic's policies, promoting non-pharmaceutical interventions such as physical distancing, physical distancing and school closures. 
Current discussions about scaling back social distancing measures and opening up the country refer to waves of disease that characterize the dramatic mortality of the H1N1 influenza in three major peaks in 1918 and 1919. As COVID-19 rates begin to steady in some parts of the U.S., people today are nervously eyeing the second wave of influenza that came in the autumn of 1918, that pandemic's deadliest period. And we'll post this article to our, uh, to the website, whattheif.com. And uh, there's a graph at that point that shows, basically it looks like three mountains. There's a small mountain on the left and then a long valley, and then a very steep and tall mountain. So it basically showing, I'll interpret this graph, it shows that in June and July, really in July, of 1918, um, there were about a peak of five deaths per thousand persons. So five out of every thousand died. That dropped right back down. And so through August and September, it went down almost to zero. But then it came back and through mid-October, through Thanksgiving into mid-December, it reached a peak of almost 25 deaths per thousand persons. So percentage-wise, for instance, 25 out of 1,000 is, uh, what, it's 2.5% mortality rate. Calculate yeah, that which is, you know, uh, enormously higher than the normal flu mortality rate. Right. So, Gabby, why can't we look at, uh, or how much can we, uh, gain from looking at the past experiences of humans versus virus. So I think to some extent, the past is a good thing to know what we're up against, like a, a worst case scenario sometimes. Mm. Um, but it is important to put into context. Um, so although we live in a very interconnected world, which enabled us to spread in the first place, people taking you know flights across continents uh, between countries, um, this was in what, like World War I? Yep, just um, after the war. Yeah. yeah, just after the war. Um, when people were coming home from vastly different areas, uh, conditions in general were cramped. Um, and from what I was reading, um, it seemed like a lot of people weren't, at, at sort of this peak, people weren't necessarily dying as much of the flu as they were of getting bacterial super infections in sort of dirty hospitals, um, where it was the bacteria that got in and infected them as a result of you know how weak they were from the flu, um, that then was started killing people um, who might have otherwise been able to recover. Um, fortunately, we have progressed as far as medicine goes, um, and so we are coming at this with a little bit more of an advantage than they came at this uh, for this pandemic. Um, we have better sanitary practices in hospitals. We've definitely taken um, social distancing to heart um, a lot earlier, um, and I think in general. Uh, our technology as far as treatment and parsing through treatments is a lot better. Um, I don't actually, I don't know enough about medical history to tell you what the average treatment for flu would have been at 1918, but they definitely mm. didn't have it a vaccine then. Uh, that came in like the forties. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the treatment is the same as the treatment today, which is you treat the symptoms and try to keep people alive. Right. Um, I mean, uh, uh, treating viral infections was, is difficult now. It's difficult then. Uh, yeah, and it's interesting, like, we have, um, machines and things that seems like they didn't have, like, ventilators and, I don't know, you know, all kinds of procedures we can do, but 
the bad news on that was that it seemed like if you went on a if you you got so bad that you needed a ventilator, you're un, unlikely to survive. So our um, we're helping a little bit more than we were in the past, but uh, not vastly different. So Matt, so what do we do? You are a historian of science. This is true. Both of which are interesting topics, and I think a lot of people don't think of those things as going together. But mm. here, here is a perfect instance where we need to look at science and history and try to gain some lessons. So what do we do about, we should learn history, but not too much. How do we find that? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Barrier. Um, it's, uh, I mean, one of the helpful things about history is understanding all, that almost always we've gone through something similar uh, in the past. Um, there's, there aren't that many new things under the sun. Um, the danger is thinking of history as a deterministic kind of thing, uh, <laughs> in the sense that, uh, you say, if you have the similar conditions in the past, you'll have, uh, the same thing happen again, uh, now. And the reason right. that doesn't happen is that history is not deterministic and people are complicated. All right. So the trick is to figure out, um, the, the useful similarities. So, for the uh, 1918 pandemic, one of the useful things here is surely to, to see that there are waves in an infection, ah, uh, in uh -huh. an epidemic, yep. right? Yep. Um, that just because you have a rise and then a fall in infections doesn't mean that things are done. That is, you should be vigilant for another wave of those sorts of things. And then the useful thing is to look at history and say, why was there a second wave? Can we figure out uh, with the knowledge we have why you got that second wave? And then as you say, now we have tools that we didn't have then. Can we prevent that? Okay. Um, and it sure looks like the waves we got in 1918 and 1919 were from the relaxation of what we would now call social distancing. Um, uh, and uh, as Gabby says, poor hygiene conditions uh, in the hospitals. So uh, will we get a... Uh, a 1918 style second wave today well that depends whether or not we did a good job paying attention to when we should be relaxing our social distancing rules and are the hospitals becoming more of a center of reinfection um, as opposed to a place where people are actually getting better yeah and it, it, uh, one thing that is a couple of interesting sentences they mentioned um one that just stands out as kind of personal from the authors i, I thought was powerful they said this is two authors, as a historian and a virologist, we believe this comparison of two pandemics has contributed to public confusion about what to expect from, quote, flattening the curve. Um, another key difference they mentioned, and, and this is something I don't know how many people think about or are able to understand. This Gabby, this is more in your territory. They say, uh, in fact, this is a subheadline in the middle of the article, SARS-CoV-2 and the flu are biologically different. Both the new coronavirus and influenza have genetic material in the form of RNA. RNA viruses tend to accumulate a lot of mutations as they multiply. They typically don't double-check copied genes to correct errors during replication. <laughs> These mutations can occasionally lead to significant changes. The virus might change the species it infects or cell receptor it uses, or it could become more or less deadly or spread more or less easily. So what, have they been, uh, I don't, do you know if, um, have people been, have scientists, let's say at Rockefeller or similar labs, looking literally at like, hey, let's, first of all, do they have copies of the 1918 virus? I think those yeah, are maintained. Mm -hmm. Yeah, people do. Yeah. 
So they can literally say, get that out of the freezer or wherever they keep it. And they can look at a current virus, right? Um, are we aware of any important differences that they've noticed that may well, affect the future? I'll say one thing is that flu, so part of what the authors mean that SARS-CoV-2 and flu are biologically different is that they are sort of two completely different animals. Um, the mm. flu has something that's really kind of neat is that its genome is divided into discrete chunks. Um, and so rather than having one really, really long sort of just like piece of a genome, like a, a long piece of string, which is what SARS-CoV-2 is, it has, I think it's like eight shorter pieces of string. And now it can swap those with other flu viruses very easily. So it's why you might see um, like, uh, or quote, swine flu emerge uh, from a farmer who works with pigs who got infected with human flu and pig flu simultaneously, and they recombined and produced a different strain. Um, that's also sort of ties into, you'll hear flus, H1N1, stuff like that, like the H and the N um, refer to things on the outside of the flu virus, but they're also components that can be swapped when flu viruses sort of exchange chunks. Oh, um, so basically, we have sloppy replication. Well, that's not, even, yeah. that's not even replication. That's just like if they're existing in the same thing, they package each other's different pieces up. It's like if I sort of gave you a bag of marbles with different colors and then sort of, you know, you had two separate bags and one is flu type one, one is flu type two, and then you mixed them together in the same cell and picked, you know, X number of marbles back out, you would get a totally different arrangement of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's and like having the, it's that big, big bin of Legos that you get after a few years. Right. You're, yep. you're not going to pull out the same set each time. So our health, you know, is being uh, affected by toddlers reaching into big buckets of DNA. Uh, in of many, in many ways. Yes, that's right. If you hang out with toddlers, they are infecting you in all sorts of <laughs> terrible true. ways. I will say, fortunately, at least for us, SARS-CoV-2 has a little bit of an ability to proofread itself. So it's a little bit like, yes, it's dipping its hand into maybe like the giant bin of Legos and it might make a mistake, but it, it's pretty sure what it needs to to build the Death Star model. Um, so it's, I like, it's sort of like that. Yeah, it's like that villain who's like above the other. I'm not just some street criminal. You know, I'm yes. a mastermind. It's, it's got, the, well, it's fortunate for us. So it's, it's sort of like a, an interesting thing with evolution because the stability of that is also important for the virus because it's, you know, more of its particles might be able to, to function um, as opposed to, say, a virus that's, rapidly mutating, but that means like most of the mutations are junk. Um, but it's also kind of fortunate for us because it means that there's not too many big change that it, changes that it's making. And, and the one change that it made has already really happened. Um, so I don't know how, whether or not you guys would have heard at all about this. It's sort of like a, a thing that scientists are talking about. I don't know how much it hit the news. Mm. Um, there's one mutation, uh, let's see, D614G. Um, it's essentially an amino acid switch in the spike protein, um, but it seems to be associated with it being more infectious. And of course, that sounds like time to panic. You know, it's more infectious than it previously was. But this happened in March, um, sort of coinciding with everyone, um, that, like the whole world going under lockdown. So it's possible that this was selected for. It enables it to live in our bodies better, to spread better between us. Um, it doesn't seem like it's associated with um, increased hospitalization by what I'm reading, but it is proof that the virus is evolving. And I think it emerged several times independently, um, sort of showing that it's selected for, it has an advantage. Um, and when the researchers were comparing it based on 
you know, sequences that they had from people who had been tested, um, they could see this mutation essentially overtake the original strain in some Whoa. places. Um, so it's natural selection in action. But fortunately, yeah. Yeah. it hasn't been selected for much. This just seems to make it more transmissible, but not more deadly based on what I've been reading. Yeah. And Matt, just to, to clarify for us, what that when, when Gabby says selected for, Mm-hmm. What does that mean? I mean, it's the cool thing here is that we do get to watch. And I yeah, when, when we say things selected for, we're uh, we're describing the the process of uh, evolution, changing a population of critters to have a new or different trait, right? So at some point in the distant past, um, proto humans uh, were selected for opposable thumbs. Right, so these are the the viruses getting a, a leg up on um, whatever. Although it's interesting because it, it's funny because I always um, I get nervous around things as far as confusing people with s- selected for, for instance. Um, it is interesting that like scientists by and large really do speak about evolution. They personify it a lot in their language but mm-hmm. they're able to do that because there's an understanding you just know what i mean you know what i mean i'm using a metaphor right? that's right it, that's exactly right it's a metaphor or evolution is full of metaphors um and it's very hard not to personify evolution as a thing that makes changes and makes decisions and none of that is correct right these are just um uh, uh what we call evolution as a process is just the results of stuff happening in a particular way and then we give it this cool name because it helps us organize uh, what we're seeing right right or even that expression you know that again it also is not fully understood um there's some nuance to it that people don't understand but like survival of the fittest Mm -hmm. so this saying selected for kind of means well this thing allowed that thing to serve this change allowed that thing to survive longer to be in that environment that it's in yeah so um selected for is as if you um if you had plants that got sunlight and plants that didn't get sunlight and water let's say the ones that were getting sunlight and water are being selected for no that's not well i mean it would be that the plant can survive a plant survives a cactus has been selected for in a strange way and to, to live. In the so uh, traits are selected for. So cacti um, over many generations uh, have had the trait of low water adaptability selected for. And that's why those cacti are still alive. So yeah. we say uh, cacti evolved the ability to survive with low water. Another way to say that is the trait for survival with low water accessibility has been selected for yeah right so it depends kind of whether you're saying it in an active or a passive voice but really what we mean is just that the cacti that do better with less water have survived that's it yeah it's interesting i mean this this is totally like a tangent but like just that the language is so confusing and so riddled with uh words of intention Mm-hmm. instead of just like mindless that's right and i should say this is one of the reasons it's useful to study the history of science sometimes um is uh, that it's, it's not an accident that we use these terms even though they're confusing and the reason for this is that darwin went and talked to animal breeders who do select uh, critters to breed in a particular way 
So there's a reason that he calls it natural selection, sort of as opposed to artificial breeding. Um, but that metaphor, but there's there's a legacy of that, right? And the legacy is that we use these particular terms, um, and these ter- these were the terms used by Victorian breeders. Uh, mm-hmm. But now that's a standard kind of linguistic shorthand we use, which, as you say, is now confusing. Interesting. Yes, yes. He wasn't thinking about the the uneducated, the mass media educated world of, I'll just say, the United States. Well, I think at that point, the mass media was kind of just ridiculing him. He couldn't win then. Yeah. Uh, all right. We'll just wrap up by saying um, there's one, you know, hopefully positive lesson from um, that this article describes from the 1918, 1919 virus. Uh, but again, we can't look too closely. So have some hope, but not, maybe not so much hope. I don't know. Um, and there's again a subheading one virus's pattern is not a prediction, but People seek answers from the experiences of the influenza in 1918 to 1919 for a fundamental reason. It ended. History shows the pandemic ebbed after the final third wave in the spring of 1919 without the benefit of an influenza vaccine, which was only available in the mid-1940s, or a molecular or serological test, or an effective antiviral therapy, or even the support of mechanical ventilation. So what do we think happened there? Well, people either got immunity to it because they got it or they died. <laughs> At a certain point, uh, a virus can only sustain itself for as long as there's a effectively infectable population. Yeah. Um, so, you know, flu, fortunately, has the advantage of the fact that it's got a bunch of different variants that it can become. Yeah. Um, so at that point, just a new, a new virus came about, another flu you know, sort of like our normal yearly waves of, yeah, you'll get some other different flu from last year. Right, 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 right. So even we had some misinformed leaders who had started this whole thing out by saying, you know, it might just disappear. It might just magically disappear. And that person, he or she, probably he, might have heard a story like this where they do disappear. Um, but it doesn't disappear quickly. It changes. And, yeah, and it doesn't disappear without causing damage. It's like a fired quote disappears but no no doing a lot of things um so nonetheless a vaccine is really something we can do to to ensure that this happens um and in fact we can almost define the date which is still a ways away but um that's good so um thank you smithsonian magazine thank you for the authors on that story i will post the link to that um uh I'm tempted to, Matt, tell me uh, if this is correct. I think that another way to state this, how to approach history, is that uh, the, the stock exchange or any, the financial markets, whenever you sign anything, it says at the bottom in very, very small print, um, what is it, previous... Uh, oh, yeah, previous um, past returns or no prediction of future... Results. Results. Exactly. That's right. That's right. So past pandemics are no guarantee of future results. Nonetheless, it would be wise to be aware um, of these things. They do put, it does put things in certain zones. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. 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 Um, Matt, do you have anything you want to plug this week? Nope. All right. Gabby? Uh, I don't think so. 
All right. We will stand by for your results. We are hoping yes. they are <laughs> positive. You are fully asymptomatic as far as we can tell. Yeah, I'm, so. I'm, I feel perfectly fine. But as with people my age, who knows? That could just mean I'm the plague rat. Um, so. <laughs> well, we hope that won't happen. We hope that won't happen. And we look forward to hearing about you. You haven't been back in the lab yet. Is that right? Oh, I, I have. Well, briefly, have? I have. Yeah. Yes. How did it feel? It was so weird. It was so empty. There was like tape marks on the floor to keep you like away from people. It's sort of like if you're talking to someone, you have to be like outside the door almost. So it's a little bit like <sighs> watching scientists in a zoo. Because like you're blocked off from them, it's it's very very strange for me. Wow, I I would go to that zoo. So maybe I look forward to the day <laughs> when that zoo starts allowing guests. So thank you. We'll check in next week and we'll hear more about your the uh, return of the scientists to the lab over there. Um, thank you all for listening. Uh, our website whattheif.com. We are on Twitter at whattheifshow. I encourage you to write in. Uh, you can email us feedback at whattheif.com, or you can just go to our website. And um, right there on the front page in the upper right corner is an area for you to type a message and send it to us, or you just go to our website, click contact and do that. If you haven't subscribed, do so. You won't miss an episode. We're, we've got two episodes a week now. We were doing sort of a virus news uh, update and science background from Gabby on Mondays. And on Fridays, I'm posting our feature presentation where we do thought experiments, incredible thought experiments in all areas of science and imagination. And boy, we have another great one coming up. So stay tuned for that. Subscribe and leave a rating or review. If you haven't left us a rating or review yet, that would really help. The world is opening up. So open up your hearts and just give us a little <laughs> click on whatever podcast you're listening to. Let, us, let people know that we're here as a resource, which I think is helpful. And uh, until next week, thank you all. Thank you, Gabby, for lending your precious time to us. And Matt, for um, also lending your precious time. It's, yeah. Your time is, is very precious. I've heard you. I've, I've, at least that's why I hear you going, my precious. I assume you're talking about <laughs> Yeah, that's, uh, that's it. That's it. <laughs> See you next week. <laughs>